Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Our Common Ground, Alternative Activist Empowerment Talk Radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Saturday, 10 p.m. Eastern Time from the Our Common Ground Studios, live. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening, and where else should you be? And would I be on Saturday night at 10 p.m., but on our common ground, taking refuge to black thought, ideas, and solutions? Thank you for being with us. For those of you who are listening and you'd like to join our chat room, it is open, and you are most welcome to join our discussion during our broadcast tonight because it is yet another very important one, 
and I am so honored to spend this evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi. We'll let you get comfortable, get your seats, perhaps a, a cold drink or a cup of tea to be here at Our Common Ground because we will be speaking truth to power but also to ourselves. This is a Saturday night happening for Race Talk in America, and I am so pleased, especially for those of you who are new to us. We're transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. Before I introduce our guests, our honored guests, a brilliant brother, a brother who I have simply have big love for. Uh, I know those of you, and I really do appreciate all of the email and the blips and the text messages, uh, checking on the safety of uh, our family here in Boston last Monday as um, my family and I attended the Boston Marathon, which is a annual trek for us not because we're so interested in the marathon, but because it is a happening in our city for so many people. Um, People, three people were killed and many mangled and many more injured within a blink of an eye. We were about two and a half blocks away from uh, the bombing on our way into walk to the finish line, which is part of my tradition each year. My grandchildren and family get a kick out of, I go one block down from the finish line, I run to the finish line, and everybody has to take my picture. And that's what I do every year as we visit with hundreds of thousands of people from across the country and um and it was a very very sad moment as history broke through on this spring day in Boston and the week has been as tragic as was the event of the bombing on yesterday we had what is called an invocation of shelter in place, which means that by law, Boston residents, Newton, Massachusetts, Watertown, Massachusetts, Belmont, Massachusetts, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Somerville, Massachusetts, all towns and cities surrounding Boston were in lockdown. You were required not to move away from wherever you were at 5 o'clock yesterday morning. And um, as the military, police, the federal police, and towns and cities and state police took over the streets of Boston, no public transportation, which is something for which most residents in the city of Boston and its environs depend upon. Commuter trains, 
were all suspended. Buses were all suspended, and by 9 o'clock yesterday morning, even taxi service was suspended. And we all had to take a pause, not at the, not just at the horror of what happened on Monday afternoon, but at the horror of what we have on the menu of what government does in our cities. And I do have to applaud the fine, intensive work of all of the law enforcement personnel and staff that was involved in the events of the week, which ended in one suspect of the bombing being killed and another being taken alive but seriously injured. You know the story, but there is an understory that goes with it, and it is very important for us to really meditate on the particulars of how we got to the end of the story. Uh, Many people and children need to understand and have dialogue, and there has been so much dialogue. I know my eyeballs were about to fall out of the sockets on yesterday because unlike Anything that happens in my home, the TV never goes on until the evening news. And yesterday, the TVs in this house were on all day long. Um, My grandson, um, 11 years old, said something very important on um, Tuesday morning. He had been watching and following the reports of the bombings. We had been talking with him, and his conclusion was that Americans are very selfish. Most Americans are very selfish, is what he said. So it has been a week of fear, a week of confusion and chaos, and I think that many Bostonians and other residents of Massachusetts involved, even our residents, the parents of the suspects in in Chetnya and the par- and and family in other parts of the country, um, have a lot of meditation to do. And I hope we'll spend some time looking at these particulars, whatever catches your your mind. The other is that for reflections for me, it was that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world, experienced that kind of chaos, that kind of confusion, and that kind of terrorism on a weekly or daily basis. And we need to really wrestle with what that means as we purport ourselves to be the most powerful country in the on the planet that 
we need to engage ourselves as civilian leaders to look at what happens in our communities. So <clears throat> we are moving not beyond it, but moving within it, and we hope that you will join with your family and your community organizations taking a look at what happened in Boston because it is not uh, it is not a, a, a something that cannot happen where you live. Thank you again for being with us here at our common ground. Um, we are going to be meeting with probably one of the most important um, scholars of our lifetime, uh, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. We're going to be talking about his life and his work. Um, he is a historian, research specialist, writer, world traveler, and public lecturer who focuses on the African presence globally and the African foundations of world civilizations. History probably was likely a, sub, a subject that you studied in, in school, either loved it or hated it. But it is very important, and we need to understand the importance of our history and how it connects with the histories of other people and ultimately the history of mankind. If you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are, as Michael Crittenden wrote, you are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. And what we're going to do in our visit with Dr. Rashidi tonight is to try to help you connect why it is important to know your roots. Sometimes we talk about knowing history, we talk about knowing our roots, and it is simply a superficial and artificial notion to us. Dr. Renoko Rashidi is the author of Introduction to the Study of African Classical Civilizations, published in 1993. The editor, along with Dr. Ivan Van Sertema of Rutgers University, the late uh, Dr. Sertema, uh, the African presence in early Asia. It is considered the most comprehensive volume on the subject yet produced, and a major pamphlet titled The Global African Community, the African Presence in Asia, Australia, and the South Pacific. He is a prolific writer and essayist and a contributing writer. Articles have appeared in more than 75 publications, and I'm sure that number is lowballed. His historical essays have been prominently featured in virtually all of the critically acclaimed Journal of Civilization anthologies. Included among the notable African scholars that Renoko has worked with and been influenced by are John Henry Clark, John G. Jackson, Dr. Ben, Dr. Chancellor James Williams, Dr. Asa Hilliard, 
Charles Finch, Finch and Dr. James Brunson, some names that you might know. And we certainly do not want to leave out uh, LaGrane Clegg and Dr. Jan Carew. As a scholar, he has been called the world's leading authority on the African presence in Asia. And since 1986, he has worked actively with the Delicts Indians Black Untouchables. In 1987, he was a keynote speaker at the first All-Indian Delites Writers Conference held in India and spoke on the global unity of African people. He has dedicated his entire life to African people. And we are so very, very honored to have him join us tonight. Renoko Rashidi, thank you so very much for joining us on Our Common Ground. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, sister. I'm glad you're you safe. You know, I'm and... so overwhelmed. <laughs> um, <I'm> just... <laughs> I mean, every time I read about your life, it, it, and, and every time I see the photos that you post from every corner of the world, I think your life and your world is so much bigger than the average African American who who simply walks through and has distance from everything that you have seen. Well, you give me a lot of credit. I'm just a hard-working African. I fashion myself <laughs> No, a good historian. I don't let those successes go to my head. I feel very fortunate and very blessed, and it's always an honor to talk about the history of uh, of African people. So thanks for having me on your show. Well, we're always reading about what you have to say about history and about African people globally and our roots. So tonight we want to talk about you for a moment, for some time. Tell us about your 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 youth and what made you become you are obviously uh just a, a lover of the history of people and the notion, the idea of being able to backtrack on on a journey of a people. What was your what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? What did your what inspired you? Who inspired you and how did they do it? Um a lot of it just had to do with the time that I was growing up in. I'm 58. Um been in California most of my life. I split my time now between Los Angeles and Paris and Toronto. But a lot of it had to do with the time that I grew up in. Um went to a school in South Central Los Angeles. I was among the first students out here to um, be a part of what was called Negro history classes. And, you know, that was way back in the day. I listened to the speeches of uh, the LPs of people like Malcolm X especially. And then later on I was influenced by, um, you know, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. As a high school student I read a book called Garvey and Garveyism. That was a big thing. And then the next really, really big thing was, of course, the university. And I... um, initially attended California State University of uh, Northridge in Southern California. And by the time I finally enrolled, which was about, I guess, a week late, 
most of the classes were full. But I wanted to, um, I needed to subscribe to at least 12 units of classes. And so the only classes that were still available were the Pan-African Studies classes. Apparently nobody wanted them. And all the classes I got were on African studies or Pan-African studies of some sort or another. I just fell in love. I had a, um extra credit assignment, and that is uh, go listen to a man named Stokely Carmichael. And this brother, of course, later changed his name to uh, Kwame Ture. And I was mesmerized, and he had a, uh, an organization. I joined a study group, and the first book we read uh, was The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And I was gone from that point. I knew that I wanted to be a historian, and I knew that I wanted to follow in the footsteps of those Africans who left Africa way before enslavement. And that really became my mission. That was 40 years ago, and I've scarcely looked back. When, when you when you read Chancellor Williams's book, um, I assume you were in university at the time. Yeah, I was a freshman, Cal State University at Northridge, and uh, it was a pivotal time. You know, I wanted to make the world a better place, and I became a political activist. But it wasn't long after that, I guess two or three years passed, that I just grew tired of arguing with people, you know, about political issues, historical materialism and dialectical materialism and spirit over matter, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized that maybe by being a historian, that was a way that I could make a real contribution. And I think I've done a pretty effective job. I've blazed some trails, and I think that the blood of people like Ivan Van Sertiman, Aza Hilliard, and John Henry Clark, and Chancellor Williams and others, and Jay Rogers runs through my veins. I am them and they are me. And they pass the baton to me just as I'm in the position of preparing to pass the baton to new generations that hopefully will do things that I never even dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm assuming, and one of the reasons that I ask you about the uh, Chancellor Williams is that um, there is such a sense of mission of inquiry in his book. And why did you decide at that point? To, to try to blend, and it seems in your career you have blended anthropology and history. Are the, can the two be dealt with, especially uh, from the point of view of an unrecorded history as you, as, or, or a limited recording of history of African peoples? Have, how, did you, how did you figure that out? Uh, well, the two went hand in hand. You see, while I was reading Chancellor Williams, I was also reading Malcolm X, and I learned early on in Kwame Nkrumah, and I learned early on that you couldn't live in the past, that no matter how glorious certain phases of our history might be, um, you can't go back and live in the past, but you can use the past as a basis and foundation and motivation for what you do now and what you're going to do tomorrow. So to me, there was never a distinction between concepts about Pan-Africanism and African history. Um, I kind of had the philosophy of Kwame Nkrumah that went, uh, that thought without practice is empty and action without thought is blind. A lot of us don't want to study. 
especially young people. I hear it all the time. I don't want to hear about what happened back in the day. Let's do something right now. And then there's another faction in our community. That's all they want to do is study. They want to read about the ancient Egyptians, black people in the Valley of the Nile. Neither of those are sufficient. It's obviously, as a people, we're confronted with all kinds of problems. So you just can't isolate yourself in a room and read a lot of books and get on Facebook and show people how deep you are, how heavy you are, how profound you are. That's very, very shallow. But at the same time, you can't ignore our history and culture. And I knew that from the beginning, that you had to blend the two. So uh, for me, being a race man, it's always been a kind of a happy marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you did was that you taught African history at, at Compton College, and I'm sure those comments come a lot from your teaching experience. But how do you, when, you know, one of the things I want to uh, cover tonight is how do you begin to form your personal, yourself around what you learn from history? I'm not sure if I understand the question, my sister. Okay. Uh, how do you, be, I mean, I hear you saying that in many ways, as you learned more about who you are and where you came from and how ancient Africa relates to you, to you how do you be, how do you transpose that to students? How do you get people to change their lives and the way they look at everything based upon what they know about their history? Well, I think the most important thing is how we interest them in their history, you see. It's one thing not to know, but it's another thing to know you don't know and be comfortable with that. That's the the troublesome part. So to me, the question is, how do you spark an interest in history? Now, I've never thought of myself as a Moses-like figure. You know, I don't think it's my job to feel like I have to carry the burden um, of making black people see things as I see it, liberating the African. I contribute to that. I think I will be a very I don't I didn't teach history at African uh, at Compton Community College. I organized what we call um equal opportunity I, I organized cultural awareness programs for the EOP program. I think equal opportunity programs and services. My job was to bring in various scholars. Now, I think that I'm an excellent educator and I can be in certain situations a very good teacher, a master teacher. But I'm not going to beat you over the head. I'm not going to try and force something down your throat that you're not interested in. If you're interested in learning about African history, I'm your man. But I don't believe that I'm going to get my blood pressure real high by arguing with people who've already made up their mind that they ain't nothing and they don't mind the concept that they ain't nothing. I don't know if that makes sense or I don't know if that's being very arrogant but I realize my limitations. And that's one of the reasons I'm so very good with my Global African Presence Facebook page, because I can put a person out in a set. I look forward 
like Mitt Romney, look forward to firing people. I look forward to putting people out because I'm not interested in arguing. I want to work with people with an open mind and people who more or less see the world as I do. And if I can find that, then there's no limit. I show a lot of pictures. I'm very, very visual. I'm very engaging in what I do. But I also don't believe in forcing this mission on people who simply at this point in their lives are not able to see it. Well, one of the things, don't you think that, you know, you were fortunate in that you were introduced very early or young, um, the notion of uh, specific histories of African peoples and the the um, import of what that means in terms of anthropology and in terms of language and how that uh, assist in uh, an understanding the Afrocentric kind of thought that blacks in America can apply in in both their politics, culture, and 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 roles as parents and teachers. But one of the things that we haven't done a very good job of. In this in, in this country, in our community, is focused on how we teach our children history, how we get them to understand its importance, and how we get them to link it to all the events that happen around them. Um, and and we have a lot of parents, uh, grandparents who listen to this show. How, what would you say to our audience about how they can begin? Let's just assume that they want to, but they don't know how. I'm not going to assume that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we can assume. I think the vast majority of our people are not terribly interested in their history. I think that we have to be very, very basic, very, very fundamental. If that were the case our black bookstores wouldn't be falling left and right. The scholars would be supported. People like Dr. Ben would not be in a nursing home in the Bronx, New York. Our legendary figure, somebody who's done more to popularize African history than anybody living. And so I do not accept the contention or the foundation that a large segment of our people are interested in their history. I think that what we have to do is work with those who are but I do not see that as a large segment of people. That's something I would never, ever take for granted. Now, what I try to do is I try to speak to people whenever possible on the level that I perceive that they are on. I use a lot of pictures. I try to engage the audience. I think that our children need to see us read. I think instead of just telling our children what we think they should do, I think that we have to be living examples of that. Go to the lectures, take them to the lectures, engage in this information, um, put black art on our walls. I think they need to see us reading books about black people and black history and black history that goes beyond enslavement. And that's a tricky part. We are kind of in a box in a sense, and we see it during Black History Month. We celebrate certain African-American heroes. So I think that we need to expand, expand our horizons expand our consciousness beyond that. And I think that we have to be living examples and not just talk 
to, to our children. I think they have to see us actually engaged in the ritual, and we have to involve them as uh, an integral part of that. Does that make sense at all? Yes, it absolutely does make sense, but uh, I think that one of the things, you know, I grew up um, in Jim Crow South, and I and I attended segregated schools until I was in the ninth grade. So by the time uh, I was developed, during the time that I was developing my intellectual um inquiry and just being inquisitive about everything. I had a basis from which to work. But I think that we're dealing with young people now in our community that who don't have a basis from which to work. Uh, for instance, I knew about the transatlantic slave trade in elementary school. But our children don't get any of that right now. And that's our fault. I I put it on us. It is our responsibility that we have allowed, uh, after all of these years, after 45 years of the passage of civil rights and Brown versus Board of Education and the whole nine yards, that we haven't taken control over having an Afrocentric curriculum in our schools, and we still allow our children to attend them. So... I do I I do that but I I do think that most of most parents simply don't have but have a basis from which to understand Look, how it is how important it is. Sister, let's check this out. Now, okay. I plan um to really move a lot of my operations to Toronto. Okay, I love it there. I found a, a new vista for me. I'm very excited about that. Now, about two or three years ago, I went up there in February to do a series of programs, and the highlight of that program was at a Toronto Afrocentric school. The place was packed, standing room only, people in the community, students, teachers, you name it. It was one of my shining hours. Less than a year after that, that school was reorganized, and the African-centered impetus was taken away from that. And the reason was not so much coming from white institutional racism, but from other black parents themselves who seemed to have the attitude, I don't want my child to be African-centered. I want my child to be like any other Canadian. All of this emphasis on Africa is actually doing more harm than good. It creates a kind of a separatist, isolationist kind of mentality. And that is what I'm talking about. I just don't see a mass. I think that our, we want our children to succeed. But I think at this stage in our history, we really have to determine what is success and what is the purpose of education. Why do we send our children to school? And what do, I mean, real, real, real basic issues and what we want with them. I think that there's so much confusion within our community that we're unable to develop a cohesive kind of movement. Now, the African-centered paradigm has always been there, and I suspect that it will always be there. 
but I don't take an extra burden as a scholar and a historian to move the masses. My job is to put the information out there, and I leave it to I leave it to a larger segment of our community to see how that information can be applied. Because otherwise, you drive yourself crazy, and I'm almost crazy anyway. I'm just right on the edge anyhow, and there's no point in me, you know, going over the cliff. Hey. <laughs> I I I think that you do have to lose your mind to come to your senses. Well, people all the time <laughs> on Facebook every day. I have a Facebook network of about twenty five thousand people. I think of myself, and I could easily have a hundred thousand, and Facebook will lift the restrictions. I think of myself quite immodestly as the Pharaoh of Facebook, and people email me every day, Baba Rashidi, Doctor Rashidi. Brother Anoka, what should I do? How do I make a contribution? And I say they're very, very basic. First of all, marry somebody who looks like you. I think okay, that's more that. important than anything else that black people marry other black people. Spend your money as much as possible with black people. You can't do it all the time, but try to do it as much as possible. Get involved in our children's education. Believe that you can make a difference. Support the scholars. Support the activists. Do the most basic things. It's not really rocket science. And I think that we have to encourage our people, push our people, but again, as Louis Farrakhan said, we have to love our people more than they love themselves, and that's not always an easy thing. Mm-hmm. And you, and and one of the things that um, your your timeline is one of the um, places that I go on Facebook uh, as one of the first place, places that I go when I hit Facebook during the day is because you have such. I and I really think it is your understanding of the journey that we have been on and who we are as a people that makes that causes you to love us so much. You are so gentle. You are so wise and sage in what you have to say to the people who you communicate with on Facebook. Well, and that makes I appreciate all that, but I'm also quick-tempered, I'm impatient, I'm easily frustrated, I don't have a tolerance for what I consider stupidity, I know that sounds very, very arrogant, and um, um, it's difficult, it's difficult being a conscious African, there's a sense that you're out there by yourself, you're on your own, you see, you know, some of the greatest scholars we've had died, not just scholars, but even activists, died with a broken heart. Marcus Garvey, it is said, died of a broken heart. I've heard stories about scholars like J.A. Rogers, and I personally talked to Chancellor Williams, who wrote that magnificent book, Destruction of Black Civilization. It's easy to find yourself very, very embittered. You know, you can see (laughs) as you move along why Moses broke the tablets at the footsteps to the promised land. I can hear him saying, screw these people. I know Moses must have said that many times in Hebrew, and I feel the same way. So you work hard. You love your people. You love what you do. Um, You have an an iron resolve. I'm going to do this no matter what. But you also don't want to have the illusion 
that there is a mass movement. You do what you can. You try to work with as many people as you can, and hopefully when you go to bed at night you feel good about yourself and you feel like no matter what the results were, you tried your best and you made a serious contribution. And for me that's a lot. I know I know that uh it must take an awful lot of patience uh for you as a scholar to do the kind of research that you do and um I can't express how overwhelmed I am with the kind of travel that you do and to expect that uh there is going to be only a small universe of people who are going to uh, engage themselves with the work that you do. Buy your books, your DVDs, go to your lectures. I mean, uh, I could I could understand how uh, that might happen. I interviewed uh, J.A. Rogers uh, many years ago. Really? A couple of times, wow. actually. Yes. And, um, and I'm always uh, very interested in the kind of deflation that black people who are struggling to uplift us, to help us find our way as a people, uh, and, um, and, 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 and wondered, you know, to, to what extent do we require sacrifice from our people and then deliver very limited reward? Well, I'm telling and you I this. Think that's, that's something you that have we need to, to travel with. Well, I think, and maybe this is one of the most valuable lessons that I have personally learned, you really, really have to love what you do. And I think that if you're in this thing for fame and fortune, you're almost bound to be disappointed. I love what I do. To me, it's an honor to research African history. It's You feel blessed when you do a presentation and somebody shows up to listen to what you have to say. That is a real, you know, accolade. That's a real statement right there. But you can't live because you're expecting fame and fortune and adulation from the masses. If you get it, very, very, very good. But I think that what sustains you is that you really have a genuine love for what you do. I mean, after all, Jesus Christ was crucified, okay, and he uh, – I guess, at least according to the tradition, he was more dedicated than any of the rest of us. So sometimes you do feel like it's a thankless task. But fortunately, I do have, a, I think, a, a good following. I have some people who love me and who are very, very supportive of me, and that keeps me going on even the darkest days, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, you you know, and, and tell us, when when you take yourself away, uh, to write, how do you begin that process? How do well, you decide? <laughs> it's hard for me to write sometimes unless I have a clear assignment uh, with a deadline. Now, the greatest scholar that I ever worked with in that regard was Ivan Van Sertema. And for those who don't know, Ivan Van Sertema was a black man born in Guyana, formerly British Guyana, South America, in 1935. And some of us who know him probably know him for the the hallmark book that he did, um, They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in Ancient America. But in addition to that, 
Ivan was the founder and editor of a publication called the Journal of African Civilizations, which you've mentioned. And it also began, I think, in either 1979, I think. And that's how um, I got involved with writing in the first place. Uh, at least that's where my most significant essays uh, in the 1980s and 90s were written for, Ivan Van Sertema. And every year we would do a different book sometimes, too. There was, there was Black Women in Antiquity, a subject that I love to talk about. There was the Golden Age of the Moor, um, uh, Now Valley Civilizations, Now Valley Contributions, not Now Valley Contributions to the World, but Now Valley Civilizations, um, uh, Egypt, Child of Africa, Egypt Revisited, African Presence in Early Europe, and my own book, African Presence in Early Asia, which went, to, which went through three editions. So we would have deadlines, and I knew that no matter what, I had to have finished an article by such and such a time. I don't have that anymore. I miss Ivan Van Sertema, and I set my own deadlines. Last year I had three books come out, three new books. Uh, I've got three coming out this year, God willing, and next year three or four more. So I set my own deadlines, and you really have to be disciplined. You have to be um, you have to carefully coordinate your schedule. Uh, and, again, you have to be passionate about the work. But sometimes finding the creativity that we need to really be good as writers is not always easy. Sometimes, you know, the, <laughs> the creativity ebbs, and sometimes it flows. And right now it's ebbed. I don't feel like writing at all. I think I'm really going to have to be pushed because I've written so much in the last 18 months that right now, the well is dry, and I kind of content myself with the short creative writings and notes that I post on Facebook and my Yahoo groups. Well, one of the things, let's talk about uh, your your projects other than your books, and I have uh, placed a link uh, on our website uh, that goes to a listing of your books on, and your website. But um, when you decide to do projects like your online uh, workshop on early Asia and Europe, for instance, um, is that does that come from what you're hearing from people who who follow you, who email you, and you decide, oh, I can, I need to do this workshop, or I need to do this project, or I need to travel to this place. How does no, that not happen? At all. Not at and all. where do you find the time? That's all. <laughs> I mean, I look up almost every week, and you have been, you are somewhere. Last year, I was thinking to myself, my God, when does he sleep? Well, I travel a lot. Uh, I'm going to unpack a suitcase, guy willing, in Toronto very soon. And that will be the first time I will have unpacked a suitcase completely since the mid-1990s. During that period of time, I've been fortunate to have visited 102 colonies, overseas territories, uh, colonial possessions, sovereign nations. I've lectured in 57 countries. Uh, so I, I live for that. I mean, that's a part of my life. Right now, if I seem a little distracted, it's because I'm just receiving Facebook messages, Facebook all the time, um, from a talk I, from some programs I gave in Las Vegas yesterday. I'm in Los Angeles now. 
I go to Europe next week, but the last two days I was in Las Vegas, and I was invited there by some serious sisters and brothers to give a lecture. But sometimes when people invite you to a program, they kind of think like they own you for that period of time, and they want to take you here, and they want to take you there and introduce you to this people in this gathering. There are times when I'm not very um, diplomatic. So yesterday I was taken to a lunch that I, I didn't want to go to in the first place, <laughs> that I didn't want to be there, right? But they said, as you no, were writing, oh, really I, like as I was reading, I was saying, don't go, don't go. Well, I went because I didn't know what I was getting into. I was a fool. I was stupid, okay? We all do it sometimes. And it was supposed to be a black gathering, at least that's my understanding. But there was a big fat white woman who was there, who was nosy, a journalist who wanted to stick her nose in the conversation. There was a guy from Afghanistan that didn't have a clue. He wanted to know mostly what I thought of the new movie about Jackie Robinson. There was a really young sister there that was really rather lost, and a couple of mature black women. And I was asked the question, the same kinds of questions that you're asking me, and I was responding, questions that I really didn't want to ask that I didn't want to respond to. I wanted to have a nice meal and sit and for once listen to other people. But no, it wasn't going to turn out like that. So somebody, this brother, had the nerve to ask in a mixed audience, do you think black people can be racist? And naturally the white woman, and they asked, of course they are, of course. Sister, <laughs> I got up and walked out. I'm not going to have conversations like that. Same thing again going with Facebook. People say, Renoko, I'm very, very interested in what you do. But a lot of people want to be spoon-fed the information. That's another thing that's frustrating to me. If I organize a class on, the, on African civilizations and it's online, chances are of the 25,000 people that I have on Facebook, I might get five or six people to respond. Since I've been on Facebook, you know, I, I haven't – gotten the kind of lectures, people haven't bought my books and DVDs and stuff like I would like. So <clears throat> I think I'm kind of in a way venting, but I'm going back to that same theme that you have to really love what you do. And I don't do what I do in response to what people are asking me about. I do it because I think it's important. Now, the projects that I'm working on right now, largely threefold. One is on great black women, ancient and modern. As a black man, I do not think that it is possible for me to sing the praises of black women enough. So I'm writing a book on black, black goddesses, black women in ancient Egypt, black women in other parts of Africa, black women in the Americas, Australia, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, ancient and modern. That's one. Another one will be something I'm also very interested in, and that is the African presence in major world museums. That's a big deal to me, how African artifacts are in museums, especially those in Europe, and what is the status of that. And the third project is also challenging in many ways because I'm writing a book on the world's 50 greatest Africans of all time, on all continents, <laughs> male and wow. female, ancient. How do you narrow it down to fifty people? And that's what and, I was gonna. Okay, how are you? How are you narrowing this down? Well, that's but how I, I lost most of my hair. That's how the rest of my hair turned white. <laughs> trying to, how to narrow it down. I, I, I do want to say, 
uh, and share with our audience tonight that I feel so special by you almost every day. Oh, come um, on now. The way in which you do sing the praises of black women. Um, and it is so much, it is so overwhelming to hear a brother um, who has an appreciation and a love for black women where they are and who they are. Um, oh, and the love is very genuine. It's not faked. It's not that I'm trying to get over. I'm trying to be a mag daddy or something like that. I love my sisters, and I think that it's just important. It's so important that black men, you know, love our women, you know, love our children. Those are the real basic kinds of things that I'm think that I'm talking about. People who may never be the subject of a book, people who may never write a book, but if you love our sisters and if you love your children, I think that's very special and that's really the basis. Now, another project that I haven't really talked hardly to anybody about, but it's something that has my name written all over it over the next few years, and that is the black presence in Australia and the Pacific Islands. I'm also going to really do some serious work on the African presence in Canada. I've mentioned my passion for Canada right now. But also, I want to do something, I want to make history. Just as I did with my work on the African presence in Asia, I've written more comprehensively on that than anybody probably in history from an African perspective. And I have a good book on the African presence in early Europe. It's called Black Star African Presence in Early Europe. But I want to do something African-centered, if you will, that looks at the African presence or the black presence, if you prefer, in Australia and the Pacific Islands. That's never been done before. And that's something that I want to uh, leave a mark. I, I really want to trailblaze in that area. And that required me to go there a lot. I've had uh, half a dozen trips among Aboriginal Australians, fascinating experiences. I've been to the South Pacific and Papua New Guinea and Fiji on multiple occasions. But for the most part, it's an area that hasn't really been explored much from an African perspective. And that's one thing I really intend to do. Mm-hmm. Let me, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you since we we're talking about your life, is, is, is there some project that you have in mind or some purpose that you have in mind to record your own history? As a matter of fact, um, I have a big book coming out, actually a book for once that's going to be published in the United States. Most of my books are published in London or Paris. I have a book right now forthcoming on Toronto, Canada, another French-language book. <clears throat> and I have another book coming out in London, hopefully in the spring, early summer, called uh, The Ivan Van Sertima Papers. But I have one more, God willing, that will be out uh, during the summer, called uh, Everywhere We Are, The Global African Presence. And right now it's about 600 pages, and that's without the photographs. And it's really a semi-autobiographical travel book. I wanted to, I wrote it on the occasion of having visited 100 countries. I've been on every continent in the world except Antarctica in search of black people. And I have had experiences high and low, very emotional in many cases. It's about how I felt along the journey, the lessons I learned, the museums I visited, the black communities I passed through. And I think it'll be the closest thing, probably, at least up to this point, to telling my own story and putting it in print. And 
my publisher seems to think it's going to be my best work ever, and we'll see. Uh, well, I, I'm certainly looking forward to that, but it it really it it, I, it really does resonate that your understanding of history informs the principles by which you have established your life. And I can't emphasize that more, the whole notion of when you begin to understand our history as a people, then the shackles and chains of the parts of that history which have been destructive begin to fall away. That's for sure. And I say all the time uh, a few things here that, and I've mentioned it already in a sense, but not really um, elaborated much, that perhaps the worst sin you can commit for an African-American or an African in the diaspora is to um, teach a child that their history begins with slavery. That's just the wrong thing to do. Don't do that. You know, teach a ch- Kwame Ture used to say that if you teach a child their history begins with slavery, you will develop the mentality that the best you can hope to be is a good slave. I'm paraphrasing him. So we have to go beyond that. We have to look at history as something to give our people a sense of pride. I love to quote people now. Marcus Garvey used to say that if you have no confidence, um, you are defeated before you start. But if you have confidence, you won before you've even begun. And your confidence is based on a knowledge of self. That can give you the sense of pride that you need to go forward, to give you that self-esteem that's so important in any relationship. And then the other statement that I really like, and it's really my philosophy of history that's been handed to me, and that is what you do for yourself depends on what you think of yourself, and what you think of yourself depends on what you know of yourself, and what you know of yourself depends on what you have been told. So if you are told 24-7, if you're a program, that you don't have a history, or that your history is insignificant, or that your history is ugly, is shameful, it's degrading, then it just seems to me that that will mold you in terms of your worldview. If black people, black children, for example, knew that we do have royalty that runs through our veins in many cases, you could even say divinity, I'm not so sure if we would be so inclined to use the B word and the N word with and internalize the meaning of that, to see ourselves with that kind of um, uh, definition. I'm doing a presentation these days called, called The Transformative Nature of African History and Culture, and I'm looking at examples. For example, I think about Chicago, and I think about all of those homicides last year. And most of that was black youth killing other black youth, black children killing other black children. And I say to myself, if those children had knowledge of self, would they be so inclined to put a gun in their hand and fire it at somebody that looks virtually virtually identical to them? So I think that these are the, the lessons that we have to learn and the lessons that we have to internalize. We have to convince our people that history is, in fact, important, that it's more than dates and facts and figures, but it's life. African proverb says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And in order to know where you're going, you have to have a sense of where you've been. And I really try to practice that in what I do every day. And your work really does reflect uh, the creation of a great deal of evidence 
and work that helps us to see that ancient Egypt was black and that ancient Egypt has been severed from any discussion of African history, and your work is so important to have established that. Um, well, actually, my work is very, you know, my sister, I appreciate all the things you say about me. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I, I love your work. I, well, I appreciate I it, but my ego is not that big. I love what I do, and I would do it if nobody said it was great. I think I'm just making a, I don't know, I hope I'm not trying to sound overly modest, but I'm just doing my little thing, trying to make my little light shine. There are a lot of people who have done a lot of work on Egypt, and I've done just a little bit. But I do try to emphasize it in the presentations that I do, that Egypt has always been a part of Africa. I've been to Egypt 22 times. I was there a year and a half ago. It was in Africa at that time. I haven't heard on CNN about it being moved or anything like that. So, um Egypt, ancient Egypt was a black civilization. The black people, uh, the people who built the pyramids and the tombs and temples were black too, and there's plenty of evidence to support that. But we also realize that for some of us, and not just some of us, but people in general, no matter what you say, the popular perception is that black people have never really done anything. And no matter what the information, no matter what the scientific evidence says to counter that, it's the popular imagination that I think we must somehow seek to change. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things um, that I have done over the 28 years or attempted to do as part of the mission of the 28 years of this program is to help people establish an African identity by setting up a framework of what is an African and who is an African and who can be an African, because I think that there are transformative powers in African history and culture that helps us to look at our journey. For instance, one one of the most powerful things I think about Marcus Garvey is that he helped he he helped us to establish the whole idea of pan africanism and once we did that once we you know by doing that then we can connect not only with our history but with our people throughout the diaspora not feeling so lost that we are a people who are disconnected from anything do you understand what i'm saying Oh, my sister, I have one child. I named her after Marcus Garvey, <laughs> okay? That should tell you what I think about Marcus. I named my baby girl Garvey, okay, Asada Garvey. So Garvey was a giant among giants. He was he was the man, as they say. And I think that his message still resonates with us. John Henry Clark, who was a Garveyite himself, used to say, bury the man, but continue the plan. And so in many ways, as I said, I think Marcus Garvey is still alive because Garveyism is still alive, and it runs through us. And the things that Garvey spoke about 100 years ago or 90 years ago, in many cases, are as relevant um, now as they were then. For example, you know, this. I've been really harping on this a lot. Here's another quote I use a lot by Wade Nobles, and it goes, the essence of power is the ability to define someone's reality 
and make them live according to that definition as though it is a definition of their own choosing. And that also includes, that includes, for example, our standards of beauty. It includes our concept of success, what it means even really basic to be happy. Now, in the 1950s, as you know, when I was uh, born, you had this black doll test. Uh, yeah, I guess you call it that, the black doll test. You know what I'm talking about, developed by Kenneth Clark, the brother from Panama. Yeah, the doll. Given a, um, an opportunity for black children to play with the white doll or the black doll, and most of the black children, I don't know the uh, specific results, seem to favor the white doll. But this was in the 1950s. And then a few years ago, that, that experiment was repeated almost identically, and the results were even more lopsided. The black children said, give me the white doll. Why? Because it's pretty, and the black one is ugly. Those are the same things that Marcus Garvey was talking about in 1914, in 1919, in 1921, because he had a black doll factory. He actually had a factory that manufactured black dolls. He said God was black. He said Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. He said that he looked around for the black man's army, his navy, his men of big affairs, and could not find them. And so he helped to try to create them. Someone asked him once, because he was born in Jamaica, Mr. Garvey, are you an African? Are you a Jamaican? And Garvey said, I will not give up a continent for an island. Garvey could see the big picture. And in many ways, we are still trying to see the big picture. So when you start talking about Marcus Garvey and people like Alexander Pushkin and Imhotep and these immortals from history, I just start to salivate. You probably need to add another hour or two to your program if you're going to ask me about them because I'm going to get on a roll. Well, well, I do want to get back to uh, this whole notion of how we see ourselves in our community. Um, um, I've talked about this idea that for the most part, we are not empowered simply because we feel lost. But there are some other things, for instance, how we relate to each other as <clears throat> um, as brothers and sisters. And we, we, we do a lot of, how you doing, brother? Oh, that sister's looking good. But do we really understand that? And I believe that we cannot understand it without the kind of work that you do. I want to talk about what you think are the most important uh, pieces of the historical puzzle that people need to get their hands around, and that is in hopes that we have people in our audience tonight who will begin to think about becoming serious um, uh, students of our history. We're going to take a break, and our guest tonight, we're spending an evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi, the renowned historian, research specialist, writer, world traveler, and lecturer. Thank you so very much for being with us here at Our Common Ground.
Look around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at nokidhungry.org. Their next meal could come from you. Um, this was at a time in the early 20th century when you could see uh, European imperialism uh, moving into the third world and see people people being wiped out, like in Australia. Like Commentaries on the Times you know, Radio like with Clayfell Benjamin, Thursdays, 10 p.m. Insightful history, arts, music, examination of the events of our time with Clayfell Benjamin. Must Radio at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Thursdays. Commentaries on Souls of Pocket, the most powerful force on the earth. A soul of fire. When oppression is profound, the in order to live, in order to locate, in order to feel oneself, unfortunately, the reality is the oppressed make certain concessions, certain mental, psychic, and spiritual concessions. In this moment in history, at this very hour, uh, we are still very much uh, in a part of and on that river. We still feel its rhythms, its tide, and we're certainly captive to its current. I think, in a sense, it is very uh, much time uh, to call for the fire. I think um, it is very much time uh, for African Americans to begin to seriously rearticulate our ongoing struggle and about social justice. Where spirit matters. Lies, Only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m where spirit matters. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you. Tonight, where we're talking with our dear brother, Renoko Rashidi, and we're having an intimate discussion about his work and his life and what's on his menu. 
given his mission to provide and to look at the insight and the inside of African and civilizations in our history. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to join us for uh, your comments and your questions with Dr. Rashidi. 347-838-9852. Again, Renoko, thank you so very much for, for being with us. Before we went on break, I wanted to talk with you about the work that you do and and how it assists us in framing our relationships. How does history work? When we know more, you, you talked about um, the doll uh, experiment and how black children uh, in the 50s and now still when the when this doll experiment was done recently in 2009 <clears throat> I think it was that the results were the same that our children are seeing images of themselves as ugly and something to be rejected uh, we we do see a lot of writing and comments on Facebook and other places where um, we criticize each other for um, trying to lighten our still trying to lighten our skin and make our hair straight and 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 use a European perspective about how we rear our children. Comment about those things. Well, yeah, I guess that <laughs> we do get a lot of that on Facebook. I try to tone it down on mine. You know, I, I have a certain kind of uh, ground rules. For example, I don't allow any profanity, you know, none. I don't allow the N-word. I don't allow res- disrespect for women, black, white, brown, any kind. I don't allow what I consider homophobia. I've grown in that area, okay? Um and I don't, you know, like, I basically uh, am very, very um, prohibitive against attacking other black folk, whether it be Barack Obama or whoever the case may be. I, I try to, you know, suppress the tendency to criticize people's religious beliefs. And I try to incorporate the idea that those of us who consider ourselves conscious African con- weren't born that way, that wisdom is a matter of evolution and being exposed. Look at the examples we can use of Malcolm X, right there in Boston, who, according to his autobiography, was a burglar, even though his parents were Garveyites, a drug dealer, a, a common criminal, who was transformed by knowledge of self into our black shining prince. So I think that it's kind of humbling, and I think that we have to um, look at ourselves critically before we criticize others. In a nutshell, that's how I would respond to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's always a concern of mine is that I think that it is so important to um, love our black selves. Oh, I agree, and you I know, think when that we... I was growing up, when I was growing up, it was fighting words, uh, Renoko. It was fighting words. You call somebody African, and it was on except for I lived in a house where my father was a a Garveyite. Uh, 
so I I knew better. But I well, don't think that we are trying to transform the course that we're on based on anything other than it's popular to do. Well, and yet we have programs like yours. We have Facebook pages like mine. When I listen to you, I feel like I should be doing the interview. I should be asking the questions because, obviously, you've made very, very profound contributions. So I think one of the most important things, obviously, and we're doing this tonight, those of us who do see the bigger picture, we have to learn to work together, and we are working together. So I think that what we're doing right now is a very positive example um, and a positive role model, a black man and a black woman sitting together on a Saturday night talking about issues that can uplift our community. But she talked about how history frames us and how it has a tendency, I think, to frame or influence our relationships. Uh, let, me, let me talk about that for just a moment. In the historical experience called enslavement, our ancestors, who were not slaves but were people, who were human beings, were mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and farmers and merchants and the whole gamut of society were captured, were hunted, and chained and taken to the coast of Africa to be taken away. And the men and the women were separated. And in the men's dungeon, which was filthy, which stank, which was dark, which was hot, which didn't have toilets, which didn't have air conditioning, which didn't have light, and where I was branded with a hot iron, I lay there, people dying to the left of me, people dead to the right of me, in complete uncertainty about what my fate is going to be, but knowing it wasn't going to be good, not knowing what happened to my family. And in the women's dungeon, my mother, my sister, my daughter, my niece, my grandmother, my granddaughter is helpless, and I'm powerless to intervene in that. And then in places like Gory Island in Senegal, you actually had a children's dungeon, an infant's dungeon, which I would not have believed if I didn't see and go in myself. And in that dungeon, I can hear my child calling me, Daddy, I'm scared, Daddy. Okay. I'm hungry, That's Daddy. Come yeah. get me. Yeah. Now, can, yeah. we say, can we not say that those memories do not affect our relationships today? Maybe we feel like we've lost the respect of the black woman. Maybe we're afraid as black men to look her in the eye because of the shame that was associated with that. Or maybe she doesn't have the respect for us that we think we should, that she should have, because maybe in the back of her mind she wonders, she wonders, can my man protect me in a pinch? We've never had a discussion about it. This terrible thing that happened in Boston, and I'm so glad you're safe, People, psychiatrists, psychologists are going to come. They're going to walk the victims through it, talk to them. We never had that. We never had that walk through. And so the memories of that trauma, the greatest crime that humanity has yet witnessed, that went on for hundreds of years, that became a way of life, has shaped and molded us. And I believe that, that is, these are the reasons that we act in the manner that we do because we, as you said, have a lot of healing to do. But many of us don't even recognize that. It's buried deep in our psyche, 
but we are not prepared to come to grips with it because it was such a horrific, you know, experience that we encountered. That's what mm-hmm. I think in regards to that. You know, I've been to Gory Island um, three times, and uh, I'll have you comment on my own experience. Um, and if people uh, would like to call in, uh, our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. But one of the things that I experience each time is a series, the the sadness, the 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 the, the sense of despair that you walk that you stand inside with the catacombs. Um, but if you if if you think about it. And if people know and understand our journey, and from there you can see our connection. That's what I think, and that is the thing that draws, that drew me out of the depression. Um, The first time I went there, I was just overwrought. I mean, I was beyond consolation. Um, I I just... um, felt like I would never be able to go back to that place. And but as I matured and understood the history and was able to reflect on from that place how far we have come. Well, um you know it 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 helps and to build the foundation of being able to understand that it didn't start there, it started another place. And that's why people like you are so important, that it started another place. And I always use this concept of Sankofa, and I talk about it on the air a lot, Uh, the idea of looking back in order to go forward. Fetching what we, where we have been, understanding that to move forward. Well, I think, you know, I've been to 28 of the 54 countries in Africa. I think I'm good for 40 of them. Who knows? Maybe I'll I'll (laughs) run the table. That would be nice. I was going to ask you that, how many countries in Africa you have, have visited. I've been to 28. I'd like to spend more time in Central Africa. Uh, I hope to take a group to Cameroon next year. I haven't been to Cameroon myself, but I feel connected with Cameroon and um, a lot of history there. But um, I think of all the places I've been to in Africa and all the places there are in Africa, I think for African Americans there are two places in particular. One is Egypt. Because in Egypt, you can see the ancient greatness of African people. You can see what we did and what we are capable of doing. And in a sense, too, you can see how far we've fallen as a people. But also West Africa, whether it be Nigeria or Senegal or Ghana or Ivory Coast or any of the places, or Benin. Benin has a um, a fortress called Wida, which was uh, similar to Gori Island or Almina Dungeon. Yes. Coast, mm-hmm. And in all of those. 
And it just, you know, there's so many emotions that come with it, and people are impacted in different ways, and they carry different lessons with them. I think the lesson that stands out the most to me is that in spite of all of that experience on Gory Island and other places that we talked about, somehow we survived that. That says that we are, in the past, perhaps you could measure our greatness by the great uh, architectural monuments that we erected. But in more recent times, you could perhaps measure our greatness by our resilience and our strength and our ability to have survived all the forces of hell, being put in those dungeons, being put on those floating coffins called slave ships, being on those plantations, our families being separated, and somehow... We're still here having this conversation tonight in April. Now, that really is amazing when you consider it. And those kind of things give you strength, and they give you the foundation. And, again, it takes us back again and again to the initial theme that we can never really get away from, and that is why our history is important, why it cannot be dismissed, why it cannot be uh, um, diminished, and why African people have to tell their own stories. That's something that troubles me a lot in terms of a lot of the films that I see. Um, Django, um, Red Tails, there are many of them, all the, the Lincoln, because it just seems to me that African people have to have the confidence and the determination to tell their own story. Nobody can tell our story but us as effectively as we can. I've done a lot of research on the Holocaust in, in uh, Europe whether you call it the Jewish Holocaust or the Nazi Holocaust, all the terrible things that happened to the Jews and other people in Europe at that time. But I've never been invited to speak at a conference on Jewish history. But we allow other people to become the authorities on our history, to tell our story from their perspective, and I'm really troubled by that. I think that if you allow other people to tell your story, then you shouldn't complain about what they write. So not only you know, are we a historical people, but um, it's very important that we write our histories, to put it in, in visual form, to tell our story as much as we possibly can. And I think that that can fundamentally shape the direction that we move in. And, and it really gives us pause when we start thinking about this to understand that our stories, our individual stories, are worthy. Uh, as a matter of fact, next week will be my last broadcast for four months. I have spent an awful lot of time talking and not enough time uh, writing. And I want my children, my 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 family and my grandchildren to be able to tell my story and to tell it the way that I told it. So I'm spending okay. four months off the air and the time that I would spend to prepare for a broadcast, I'm going to be writing. Uh, well, I know I've you're going done... to be missed. Pardon me? I know you're going to be missed. <laughs> uh, we'll still have TruthWorks Network, but um, I think that you're you're absolutely right, and I don't want someone else to tell my story. One of the things that I love about the way in which you use your brilliance and your experience and, th that, and your knowledge is that you have a, a, a just a very deep appreciation for uh, music and art 
and the visual the visuals that we have created in our history. Tell us about your music taste. I like all kinds. I like all kinds. You do. You like all kinds of music. I can tell. I like I like serious jazz. I like blues. Uh, I'm very romantic. I have a strong love streak that runs through me. I like West African music, East African music, South African music, North African music. Um, And it goes well with the information that we're giving. So, yeah, I try to use as much as Malcolm X used to say, by any means necessary. And so I think the music, the art, the visual stimuli, uh, lately, as you notice, I've been using a lot of African proverbs, you know, to tell stories. So I think that's very important. But, Sister, what I would like to do, if if it's okay with you, and I know time is winding down, I'd like to look at the African experience, and I'd like to just take at least a few minutes, if possible, if you don't mind, looking at every major continent and region and just highlighting some of the things about our experience that we may not know. I would love to be able to take maybe five minutes with Asia, five minutes with Europe, five minutes with Australia, maybe five minutes with ancient America, and kind of put the body to the form that we've been talking about. Please do. All right, let's start with Asia. First of all, um, I would say that Asia perhaps has more black people than even Africa itself. I think that when we look at the African presence in Asia, we're looking at something different, and that is what we might call the ancient diaspora, that Asia was the first continent in the world to be populated after Africa itself. And those descendants, the descendants of those black people, still populate parts of Asia. Black people in the Indian Ocean, in a place called the Andaman Islands, little black populations, physically diminutive Africoid populations in the Philippines. These people represent the first people of Asia. And then you have migrations that occur much later out of Africa that have a profound influence in classical Asian civilizations, black people in ancient Iraq, the African presence of people called the Dravidians who built the Indus Valley civilization, traditions of black kings in ancient China, black people in Cambodia and Vietnam and Thailand, Uh, the black presence in the development of Islam. The prophet Muhammad, according to at least one source, a man named Al-Jahiz, his grandfather, I guess his father's father was a black man, who was Sharif of Mecca, who fathered ten sons or ten lords. They are described as black as the night and magnificent. One of them is uh, Abdallah, the father of the prophet, peace be upon him. Muhammad himself is supposed to have told Bilal, the great African Muslim, Bilal, last night I dreamed that I went to paradise, and I found that you had been there before me. Later on, Africans who are introduced into Asia as enslaved people from East Africa who settled in, for example, southern Iraq, And these Africans engaged in the largest revolt of enslaved people probably in history called the Revolt of the Zans from 868 to 883. These are important chapters in the global African experience. And then you have something similar in Europe. You have African people as important figures in Greek mythology. You have African emperors at Rome, African popes, 
African theologians, African senators, African gladiators, African writers like Terence Afar, a black man in early Rome who gave us the immoral expressions, I am a man, and therefore nothing human is alien to me, who was the person who uttered the immortal words, where there is life, there is hope. You have the people called the Moors, who reared black people out of Northwest Africa, largely Muslims by this time, who reintroduced Europe to civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire. You have the black Madonnas of Europe. You have the tradition in the European Renaissance of the wise king, the Ethiopian king who came to pay homage to the Christ child in the mansion in Bethlehem. You have the African blood that runs through the veins of the father of Russian literature, Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin. You have African blood that runs through the veins of Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, who told us one for all and all for one, and who said that your work may be finished, but your education is never completed. He said that a man's mind is elevated to the status of the women with whom he associates. And then you have black people in Australia and the Pacific who who have been in Australia for so long that they believe Africans come from Australia, not the reverse, but that there was a Garvey movement in Australia. There was a Black Panther Party movement there. Black people in New Guinea and Fiji who say they come directly from Africa. And, of course, those Africans who helped influence classical American civilization that Ivan Van Sertima talked about, Africans in the Olmec world. Africans in the Mayan world, Africans in South America before the Inca, who critically affected classical civilization there. So we have a rich, rich history, the greatest story that's barely been told, and the information is there. It's just waiting for us to tell it. Well, it, it certainly, uh, it certainly um, is being told by you, and we are hoping that people will take the information that you just gave and begin to just choose one area of our, our, our I mean, something, the African presence in Asia alone is something that you can begin to become your own historical student. Um, That's correct. You know, we, we have a lot of work to do. And I was, you know, I, I'm still haunted by your comments early in the broadcast about Dr. Ben. And for those of you who are interested, his biography, a biography of Dr. Ben is on our website. And I also have included an address where you can write to him, and and thank him for his life's work, send socks and uh, gifts. Uh, there are things that we can do to bring dignity to our presence on this planet um, if we know why we do them. And you cannot understand the importance of people like... Um, Edwin um, Scobie, Edward Scobie, and and Obadali Williams, and Karen Karen Johnson, and um, Jan Carew. If you don't do the study, 
Well, let me, let me just mention who these people are. Now, these are some of the scholars that I've worked with and known. Edward Scobie was, the, uh, was from Dominica, one of the British uh, islands in the Caribbean, and he became the world's leading authority on the African presence in, in early Europe. And he also did some excellent work on the Haitian Revolution. Obadeli Williams is a bibliophile, a collector of rare books and photographs in Atlanta. Um, Obadeli helped Ivan Van Sertema edited a book called Great African Thinkers Shake Out to Jope. A lot of people call him Diop, but it's actually Jope. And he's one of the great, maybe the greatest scholar, scholar we've produced in modern times, who more than anybody else, scientifically, if that needed to be done, he certainly did it, showed irrefutably that the ancient Egyptians were African people. Karen Ann Johnson is a, a, a professor at the University of Utah that's done tremendous work on the African-American educators, um, Anna Julia Cooper and Nanny Helen Burroughs. I think it's very, very important in the world that we live in to also acknowledge the African women scholars, you know, because in our community I think there's a very strong patriarchal tendency and we can't take on the same kind of sexist attributes as a culture that dominates us at this point. And then you have Jan Carew, also from British Guyana in South America, who was a major mentor of Ivan Van Sertima, who knew Malcolm X, who knew Kwame Nkrumah, who traveled probably more widely than I have, and uh, who just died a few, a few months ago. He was like 95 years old. These are great, great men and women whose names we should know, just like we know the names of Jay-Z and Beyonce. Well, we're... <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's a great point. Um, tell us about your, your, the, your DVDs and your audio lectures that people can um, purchase. Well, the DVDs I'm really pushing these days. Um, I have a website called www.travelwithrenoco.com. That's www.travelwithrenoco.com, and you can find a list of them. But they include some of my best presentations ever. Um, you have one on the African presence in India. You have one called Who is the Original Man? That looks at black people as the original people on the planet. I have another big one, a new one called The Global African Presence that is really one of my signature presentations, another one on the Nile Valley, another one on early Europe. So there's a whole series of those, and I'm constantly developing new ones. I want to get a good one on black women in antiquity. I can't seem to work that out technically. I've done several presentations on the African presence in Australia and the Pacific, but I'm still looking for a quality DVD on that. So the stuff that I have is good stuff, stuff that I'm very proud of technically, visually. Uh, they're very engaging. I think the people would enjoy them. They're very reasonably priced. Um, I have a photograph that I promote on my website called Christ in Glory or um, the Coptic Christ, which shows an early depiction of Christ and the disciples as clearly you know, phenotypically black men and black women. Um, and, of course, I have the new books, African Presence, in, another book called African Star Over Asia, The African Presence in the East, and another one called Black Star, The African Presence in Early Europe. So go to that website, and also you can go to that website if you want to be updated about my, my tours. As I mentioned, next year I plan, God willing, on doing a group tour, a group tour to Morocco and Cameroon, 
uh-huh. this year, and I'll probably repeat it next year with some variation, doing one called um, Museums, Monuments, and Black Madonnas, Europe's African Heritage. So I encourage people to go to the website and also to email me if they're interested. Email is a good thing at renoco at yahoo.com, and you can also try to join me on my Facebook page. Well, the, again, I want to repeat that. It's travelwithrunoco.com. That's travelwithrunoco.com. And the email address is renoco at yahoo.com. We're just really so pleased to to have you. I'm posting all of this information on in our chat room, which is why it's important for those who are listening to the show to come in. And we've got uh, a great deal of uh, number of guests. But let's go to our phones right now. 404, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call with Dr. Renoko Rashidi. Hello. How are you doing, Janice? Dear Goddess, dear sir, my... I'm just starstruck, and uh, I—I've never heard heard anybody. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm speechless. Okay, I had all kinds of questions. I've been taking notes. Okay, <laughs> take a breath, Stuart. I—I <laughs> <laughs> tell you, if you're an artist and a, and a musician, Lord have mercy. I'm just blessed. To, to, I just want to say thank you, thank you, Janice. First of all, for for existing with this. Show, you know, I'm sorry that this is the last night. I had to call when I heard that. No, we're going to have a sit. show. We're going to have a farewell show next next week. Oh, okay, okay, great, great. You better believe I'm gonna try to be there. You know, I, I don't. I stop making promises. You know, I, I just. I may <laughs> I, I may have a big surprise for everyone next week. It won't be me staying on the air, but uh, uh, I think that I may have someone who's going to sit in for me. Yes, yes, yes. This is my first time ever hearing of the doctor, and and you know, I, you know, I, I love Doctor Diop, Doctor Ben, Doctor. You know, I, get, I, 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 and I haven't long been introduced to these cats, even though I was a kind of a little, you know, revolutionary in in my high school. I went to music and art, and that was the same school, you know, and it was all of these, you know, so-called conscious people who were just separated from one another. That's all I found. They, none of them were interested. I'm the only revolutionary I knew there. You know, I, I'm leading the thing. But that's the point, you know. This man, you express my heart because I, I'm an artist, and, and what you said is point blank. You do it, whatever it is you do, you're doing it because that's what you love, you know. And uh, and and you really have to be genuine and sincere about it, it, the, the love to, to even begin to get the discipline. And it definitely comes from understanding of of our history. You just increase my my my, my energy level. A hundred million times already, you know. So I, that's all I want. I just wanted to give a shout out and say thanks. I had a question somewhere. Oh, oh, I know about good and versus evil in any spirituality. I, I'd like if you would please talk about that and the, the ancients. Cause, I mean, I'm a little conscious of the Dogon, Darfur, uh, and all of the ancient uh, capitals of the planet that seem to be in that grid that a lot of us don't know about, but in that grid being attacked, occupied, and, and genocide committed upon those energy centers of the planet. And I'm going to shut up there, if if you would, please. Well, brothers, I appreciate the accolades, and those are really fascinating subjects. But I'm just a simple historian. 
Now, if you were to ask me something about history or something that I've spoken on, I would be happy to respond. But I don't have a lot of insight in any more than anybody else into those areas, and so I'm going to decline that and leave that for somebody perhaps more astute in those areas to address it. I'm not going to just tell you something off the top of my head. So thank you very much, but I'll pass on that for this evening if you don't mind. Okay, I wrote one other one, uh, fractals. I recently discovered that it was found that in, in areas, I believe, Kenya, I'm not sure, in Africa, that the paintings that were being done were actually using all of the same principles that they're just discovering in fractal physics now. And and, and that definitely relates to the vibrations and the, and the ancient histories and, and religions as well. But that, that whole thing of... Did you find that frequent, or was that uh, uh, just a recent discovery, or do you know anything about that um, understanding of the fractal pers- fractal breaking down of 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 with the redundancy in nature type of? No, dynamic? I really don't. I, I really okay. am not familiar with that. But thank you anyway. That, that's all right, sir. You, but Neil Degrassi, <laughs> Neil Degrassi Stewart has uh, written some stuff on on that. But we hope that you will include in your personal library the works of um, Dr. Renoko Rashidi, and that will lead you to 500,000 other questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you know me, don't you? <laughs> thank you, Stuart, for your call, and it's great having you, you with us tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Doctor. And I just want to say you are all of those subjects that I that I just mentioned and and. You don't even know it, but, uh, right. but trust thank you, my brother. We appreciate you. You, 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 you're there. You're, you're the, the in the chakras that that of, of vibing art and this. Well, comment on the bombing if you don't comment on the. Uh, <laughs> I'll talk to you later. God bless. Okay, Bye-bye. thanks, Stuart. And we're going to go to two four eight. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. You're with Dr. Renoko Rashidi. Oh, hello. Uh, first, I would like to. Uh, thank Dr. Rashidi for uh, carrying the torch uh, for our history and not letting it uh, be extinguished. Uh, and I do have a question, and my question is, uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, Africans who were in America uh, prior to Christopher Columbus coming here? Uh, I'm not speaking of the Olmecs, I'm speaking of uh, Native, well, they were classified as Native American tribes, such as uh, the Wichita. Uh, I am very fascinated by uh, those groups uh, that were here uh, and would like to learn a little bit more about them. Well, certainly um, people of African descent, black people, I would say, as I use the words black and African interchangeably, were the first people to set foot on what we call the shores of the Western Hemisphere of North America. Now, whether or not those original black people who may have come here as far back as 75,000 years ago survived into modern times is an open question. I know a lot of people are claiming that, but I haven't seen the real evidence for that. There is a work that was published in 1947 uh, called Men Out of Asia, by a scholar named Harold Sterling Gladwin that postulated, and I believe it, that a whole series of migrations uh, proceeded out of Africa into Asia 
and wandered into the Americas tens of thousands of years ago. We have skeletal remains to support that. We have um, um, the idea of black people as being part of the misty realms of fairy tales and myths and legends. But whether or not entire communities or tribes or nations survived from that time period or came over from Africa in large enough numbers to constitute communities that were still in existence at the time the Europeans came over here led by Columbus, I think it's very, very dubious. And I have more questions about that than I have content. I know of no reputable scholar, African scholar in modern times, who's argued that large segments of Native Americans were, in fact, black people. I just haven't seen the support for that. Does that answer your question? Uh, it certainly does. Uh, there was a, a lot of questions that I had, and um, it was difficult finding really solid answers uh, to my questions. Uh, so this has helped uh, quite a bit, and it kind of guides me down the path um, I need to go in order to learn uh, more. Uh, and I do appreciate the information. And thank oh, We you. appreciate you. Thank you, sister. Thank, thank you. you, my sister, and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. This is our refuge where we do seek answers. Dr. Renoko Rashidi, you have just been, it, this has been such a pleasure. It, it certainly hasn't been enough time. Um, and our, and you know what uh, I'm working up to. <laughs> I'd well, love I'd to, to be able I'd to host. Be happy to come back. I, well, I'd be happy but, to do that. You know, I I rarely do um, internet radio, blog radio. I get lots of requests, as you can imagine, to do it. But I did this tonight because I think you're very special, and I knew your well, audience would be so special. So it's been an honor to be on your show, and, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. Uh, I just returned to Los Angeles this afternoon. I take off next week for uh, travels that will take me to other parts of North America, to Europe, to South America, but I wanted to do your show. I appreciate your persistence, uh, your desire to get, on, get me on the show, and I know that this week has been a very emotional one for you, so... I'm grateful, my sister, and if you want me back, all you have to do is call me. Well, I certainly look forward to having you back uh, to to do a teach-in to get people started on their journey to become students of history uh, from a perspective that values and treasures uh, the truth uh, about our history, and I think you're the person definitely who has done that work and i thank you so very much uh for let being me, with us tonight let me just leave you with this last statement i think that you can directly measure a people's status in the world by the emphasis or lack of emphasis that they place on their history and culture all strong people emphasize their history and culture all the time weak people do not and in order for us to be the strong people that we are destined to be, we must not only emphasize our history, we have to go as far as to make our history sacred. And I think that that is the path that we have met on, and uh, I hope that we continue upon that path and pass this baton down from generation to generation so that they look back on us, 
that we like we look back on some of the great African heroes and sheroes of old. So thank you for having me, my sister. You be safe, and I look forward to the next time. And safe journeys to you and a safe return um, back home and then back home. Because <laughs> you're always next- going home and coming back home. <laughs> okay. So thank you so very much. Uh, our guest tonight has been Dr. Renoko Rashidi, and what a, a special treat it has been for me to um, have him with us tonight. I mean, you have no idea until you really read his work, understand his life, uh, and the work that he does. He is a man that believes that his main mission in life is to help make Africans proud of themselves, to help change the way Africa is viewed in the world, and to help reunite a family of people that has been separated far too long, and what a noble mission it is. There is dignity for you and your children in your history if you begin to understand it. Thanks to all of our calls. Um, we, we we want to talk to you a little bit about what we're doing here at Our Common Ground. We're going to take um, some time off. It's time for me to write my history uh, so that I, I think it's very important for every black person uh, to leave this to transition with their legacy and their story intact. And as I get older, and this is my 28th year on the air broadcasting for the empowerment and upliftment of our people, and now I have come to the stage of my life where I am a witness, and I have to write my testimony I have to go back and look at and fetch all of the things that I have seen and translate them so that it creates a path um, toward empowerment for the people, for my people whom I love so much. Um so I will be off the air for four months. Uh, and I know there are people out there, Alpha, just hush up. Uh, India, just hush up saying, you know she's not going to be gone that long. But uh, I do think that the project that I'm undertaking, given that it is, as this broadcast is, a second job, that it's going to take me that long to at least get it to a place where I feel satisfied that uh, I have done it justice. I've seen a lot of things. Uh, I grew up uh, in Jim Crow, in the Jim Crow South, and that has its meaning in my history. Um, I have a lot of firsts on my list. I have been the beneficiary of the blessings of people who have died and lived 
on my behalf. And I think it's very, very important. So what we're doing is we want you to get this schedule in your brain. TruthWorks Network. Uh, we're hoping that Dr. Rashidi will bless us with a series of teach-ins, and I've been talking with him about that for Monday evenings. But on Wednesday night, we have a very brilliant, a very powerful voice on TruthWorks Network with Soul of Fire and Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. On Thursday evenings, and all of our programming is at 10 p.m., so that you get a chance to spend some time with your family before you settle down to get to talk that matters. And on Thursdays, it is Commentaries on the Times Radio with Playfell Benjamin. On Fridays, it is Advanced Urban Progressive Talk Radio for Politics with the Alpha Show. I am looking at and in discussion with two or three people who I think that you will enjoy uh, to maybe sit on this seat um, while I am away, and we can talk more about that next week. We hope that you'll join the India Declare Show, the I Declare Show at Blog Talk Radio, Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. right here. Uh, for the real, raw, and right now, um, looking at the difficulties of our times, of the events that are happening right before us. On Monday night, this Monday night, because of technical difficulties at Blog Talk Radio, we were not able to broadcast commentaries on the Times Radio with Playfell Benjamin, but he will be here on Monday night for this week at 10 p.m., and then he'll be at his regular time slot on Thursday nights at 10 p.m. coming up this week. Thank you so very much uh, for being with us. We hope that you will continue to support and listen to our broadcasts um, and that we can treasure and understand the history of our own media Uh, with the loss of Gil Noble and the loss of many pioneers in this black talk radio thing. We have to continue to build it, and uh, I'm hoping that our Common Ground media and communications will continue to be about building independent black media for our community that is has purpose and understands in the context of our history what we need to be talking about. So um, for those of you who are our regulars, you will uh, hear from me via email. If you have not, join us on Facebook. I will continue our Facebook page as Our Common Ground. Join us on um, Twitter at Janice OCG. I will continue to communicate in that way. We need to not only count our blessings, but treasure our blessings. And I hope that you will. 
Thank you all for being with us, and you have a good week, and we'll see you on Monday night commentaries on the Times Radio with Playfell Benjamin, chastising the scoundrels and praising the saints. I'm Graham. Get us We are living in a nation faced with the possibility of war on multiple mental and physical levels. We got black wars against the police. We still got crack wars in the streets. Unemployment at its peak. Overcrowded cells in present day hell. Wars of Jews against Muslims over whether a created state is real. Wars over Western with Saddam. American politicians arguing over the difference between smart and dirty bombs instead of smart children in dirty schools. I feel like it's me against the world and I'm starting to get ill without even thinking of Kim Jong. Though North Korea does have the world turning up on its axis right now. With these signs of the time in mind, I wake up every day asking myself one question. And it takes me no less than 24 agonizing hours to answer. Am I going to die today? I said, am I going to die today? I don't even bother watching my back anymore because I might get killed from the side today. Or maybe they get me in nuclear with bombs dropping from the sky today. Or maybe some religious fanatic is going to blow my behind up in a train station after deciding he wants to get closer to paradise today. Hell, I got to wonder if some insane and depressed pilot whose wife just cheated on him and ran away with the kids is going to fly today. Right into the 13th floor of my building where I just called my wife to tell her I got to rise and pay. Or am I going to get hit on some DWB while driving on I-95 today? Or maybe some crooked cop's going to decide that some no good nigga's mom's got to cry today? All this while wondering if Bush is going to play chess if I lie today? Why today? Instead of thinking about all that today, I think I'm just going to lose myself in the movement. The moment I own it, because it might be time to go. It only takes one shot for cops to release my soul. Because our community stalked by filthy 5-0 souls. So I decided that I'm going to fight today. Because there's always just enough time left to be right today. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground. As we transfer truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham. Next week, Saturday, 10 p.m., an evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi, his life and his work. I'll be listening for you. I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to fight and never give in. So if I die before I lay my head to sleep today, I just pray to God my soul to keep today. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.